here that we were able to be together. Um, we uh, have a wonderfully comfortable day today compared to last Sunday. But I have some bad news for you. If it keeps warming at this rate, it's going to be about 120 here next Sunday. Uh, so, but no, it's beautiful. It feels like spring, and it's great to be out. Names are important. They tell us about something or someone, and I don't even know if I let's see. There, it works like that. I wonder what's going on. Um, they tell us about something. For, for instance, if you're looking for a restaurant, you might look at the name of the restaurant. You can maybe figure out what it's about. What, what kind of restaurant is it? Just by the name. Or if you're uh, think about the cities that are around us, they have meaning. Uh, spring Hill, where we live, is, there's a hill with spring on it. Um, bon Aqua, not too far from here. Good water, French for good water. A little farther south, there's Hohenwald, which is German for high forest. And so names have meaning, convey meaning. People's names have meaning. Uh, typically in our culture, uh, someone's nickname might have meaning. Uh, maybe you, they have know someone based on uh, their their characteristics. Uh, they have uh, a nickname. It tells something about them. Um, there are some names that aren't very fitting and that, they, that don't really work. For instance, down in, uh, in Athens, uh, there's a funeral home that uh, Nikki and her parents always got a kick out of driving by, the Spry Funeral Home, sort of an oxymoron. And then I don't know if you've been in the fly community uh, off of uh, Highway 7, uh, the fly community, there's a fly cemetery in fly. The signs it says fly cemetery. I've never buried one, but I guess some people do. Um, names mean things. Helen Keller is the famous lady who was both blind and deaf. And she became blind and deaf when she was 19 months old. That was before she had the ability to develop language skills. She was a perfectly normal child. She caught a disease that medical treatment today probably would have fixed, but it did, couldn't fix it there. A high fever caused her to lose both her eyesight and her hearing. As a result, she couldn't talk uh, and could not communicate. Well, you know the story, how the family struggled for years trying to get uh, her some type of help and diagnosis, and over and over again they were told no. Um, they, uh, they got in touch with a man who was working with the blind, or with the deaf, uh, whose name you might know, Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, he uh, was uh, working on technology like the telephone because he had, uh, I think, a loved one who had hearing problems. Um, eventually, they got in touch with a, uh, a young teacher named Ann Sullivan who helped uh, Helen Keller, you know, develop the language uh, where she could sign in her hand and then communicate. And Helen would eventually be able to talk in a rough form and communicate and was very inspirational uh, to those who struggle with disabilities. I think about the age of nine, they went to a boarding school uh, where she could get some more education. And while she was there, uh, a preacher visited her. Now, Helen, again, had gone blind and deaf at age 19 months before her parents could talk to her about God. So this preacher came into her, who also knew sign language, and he signed in her hand to her about God. When he did that, Helen responded to him about God. She said, I always knew he was there. I just didn't know his name. 
she knew that there had to be a God by what she could sense being both blind and deaf. She still knew there was a God, but she didn't know his name. And that's important because names have meaning. Names help us to understand things about people and what their characteristics are. And so tonight, I want to spend a few minutes talking about names that are given to God in the Bible because they convey a meaning and help us to have a better understanding about our Creator. And these aren't, this isn't an extensive list. There are more names given to God than are listed here in our lesson tonight. But I think these will help us have a better understanding about God. And, and these names aren't going to be a new revelation to you, like, oh, I never heard that name. But as we stop to think about it, as we do our daily Bible reading, and we come across these names, the tendency is to just, just go over it quick. Oh, that's God. But there's some important information that's conveyed in those names. And so let's talk about that tonight. I gave the kids a, a sheet that they can take notes on if they want. Um, and the rest of us can follow along. But you are going to need your Bibles tonight because I'll put the, the verses on the screen, the, the, the references. But we're going to turn to those as we look at them. The first name that we want to look at tonight is Almighty God. That's listed many times in the Bible. You want to turn to Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 for the first instance where this name is referred to, uh, God is referred to with this name. And God has absolute power over all. In, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. God is making a covenant with Abram who had changed his name to Abraham and he identifies himself as almighty God. I am almighty God. Isaac later, if you flip over to chapter 18 of Genesis, uh, sorry, chapter 28 of Genesis verse 3. Genesis chapter 28, verse 3, is Isaac is blessing Jacob. He refers to God as Almighty God again. And, and, and Isaiah chapter uh, 20, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 28, verse 3. Genesis 28, verse 3. Um, it says, um, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples. God is Almighty. And that's important as God is making a covenant with Abraham making pretty phenomenal promises to Abraham that he would identify himself as Almighty God, the God who has absolute power over all. You know, if I were to make you a phenomenal promise, the first thing that you ought to do if I make a promise that seems to be unrealistic is ask yourself, do I have, does he have the ability to fulfill that promise? For instance, what if I told you I had a pocket full of money, I had a million dollars in my pocket tonight? And the first person that came up and shook my hand will get a million dollars. The first thing you're asking yourself is, does he really have a million dollars in his pocket? The answer is no. He can't fulfill that promise. Okay? But God can fulfill his promises. If he makes a promise to us, he can fulfill it because he is almighty God. He can do anything within reason. We've talked about some things that God can't do. He can't lie. can't be tempted. But he is almighty. Uh, and He has made a covenant with us. And He's made phenomenal promises to us. And there's nothing too hard for Him. Turn to Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. Genesis chapter 18, they're going to have a son in their old age. And it seems unrealistic to them, unbelievable that that could even happen. And notice what God says about Himself in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. Genesis 18, verse 14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. 
because our God is the Almighty God. And so the first name that we see in the Bible is Almighty God. And we need to remember that as we think about God, that He is Almighty. The next name in the Bible that we want to look at that is given to God is the Most High God. He's referred to as the Most High God over and over again. God is the Most High. A king is exalted or is high. He reigns over his subjects. A king does. Our president does as well. He is exalted to a, a position of authority. But God is the most high. God reigns over all. He is, has absolute sovereignty. God answers to no one. He is the most high God. In the first instance we see of that is in Genesis chapter 14. Turn in Genesis chapter 14 and look at verse 18. Genesis 14 verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Not just any God. He's the king of God Most High. Why is it important that we understand that we serve the Most High God? Because God answers to no one. He is the absolute authority. He is the Most High God. You can't question God. We cannot question the Most High God. He has absolute authority. Turn your Bibles to Job chapter 38. Look at Job chapter 38. Job had been doing a lot of questioning of God, the Most High God, who has absolute authority. And God says, not so fast. You can't question my authority. I'm the Most High God. And he gives lots of reasons why Job should not be questioning him. In Job 38, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations of God's shadow? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning, star, morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its saddling, uh, swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors? When I said, this far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop? Have you commanded the morning since your days began have, and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? And he goes on in chapter 38 and, verse, and chapter 39 to, to, to show Job that you don't question me. I'm the Almighty God and I'm the Most High God. Drop down to chapter 40, beginning of verse 1. Chapter 40, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. God said, You don't question my authority. You don't question me. And so it must be for us as well as we deal with the Most High God. We don't question His authority. What God does is right. And you know, there are a lot of people in our society today that are deciding that there is no God, that they're deciding that they are atheists, that they don't believe in God. And a lot of the reasons you hear for that is because they think, well, I just don't agree with the God that's portrayed in the Bible. I don't think that what God does is the, the women and the children. 
and, and instructing the Israelites to kill the winter. I don't think that's right. How could a God do that? That's not right. You're questioning the Most High God who has absolute authority. What God does is right. He establishes what's right. And we don't have the ability and the right to question Him. He's the Most High God. We don't question God. Furthermore, if He is the Most High God, He has to be the Most High God of our life. He has to have absolute authority in our life. God demands that. Look over in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, in the Ten Commandments. It was His expectation of the Israelites, and it's His expectation of us today. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Why couldn't I have other gods before Jehovah God? Because He is the Most High God. He has to have absolute sovereignty over my life. And I have to be in submission to Him. And so, we serve the Almighty God, the Most High God. And closely associated with that is the next name that we read often in the Bible, and that is Lord God. Lord God means, or sorry, Lord Lord means Master. God must be our Lord or our Master. We see this reference for the first time in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. Genesis 15, verse 2. After God has come to Genesis, I'm sorry, to, uh, um, after God is making a covenant with Abram, in verse 2, but Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram's called God, Lord God. God is the master, and he has to be the master of our life. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of God and Lord of lords. He is the great, mighty, and awesome who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. The Lord our God, He must be the one who is Lord of our life. He is Lord of lords. Again, He has that preeminence. He is God of being Lord is shown throughout the Bible, all the way to the end of our Bibles in Genesis, or sorry, Revelation chapter 17. Choose several places in Revelation chapter 17, or in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14 is one of those. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome him, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Here, Jesus, the Lamb, is called Lord of lords and King of kings. That's the same type of, type of terminology that's used for God, isn't it? Those who claim to be Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. They believe He was just an angel. The language that's used of Jesus is the same language that's used of God our Father. Jesus is Lord of Lords, Lord God. His sovereignty is clear here. The question for us is, is He Lord of our lives? Have we submitted to Him? The next name that, is, that we want to look at tonight that is used to reference God is Jehovah or Yahweh. Jehovah or Yahweh. And we say Jehovah or Yahweh because this is the, uh, the name that's given him in Hebrew, but we don't know how to pronounce it. 
The name in the in Hebrew uh, is the word he, in Hebrew is uh, spelled Y H W H. It is also known as the Tetragrammaton, which simply means four letters. In Hebrew, the Hebrew written language did not include vowels, and so. Uh, this uh, word, uh, Y-H Hebrew, would know how the words were pronounced. The problem, though, is because God gave the children of Israel the command to not take his name in vain, they had go, go, gone so far as to not say his name at all. So they were careful not to say it in vain. And so over time, people lost the uh, knowledge of how to pronounce Y-H-W-H. It is often pronounced as Yahweh or Jehovah, but we don't know exactly how it was pronounced back in the Old Testament times. But it is translated Jehovah and Yahweh many times. In our Bibles, it's often translated Lord. And if you notice in the typesetting of your Bible, often in the, in the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, you'll see Lord put in all capital letters. When it is in all capital letters... That indicates that it is tra the translation of the te Tetragrammaton, or Yahweh, or Jehovah. Um, and it means, the name means, self-existent or eternal. God is self-existent or eternal. God refers to himself as the I Am. God is and has always been. He is self-existent and eternal. He doesn't need anyone or anything. He's eternal. The name is first used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Turn your Bibles there, and you'll notice that you'll see that all capital Lord presented there, which again is the, the translation of the Tetragrammaton. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they are created in the day that the Lord, or Jehovah, or Yahweh, God, made the earth and the heavens. That's the first place it's used in the written word. But the first time that it is presented to man is found later, and that's over in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3. Turn over to Exodus chapter 3. I'm sorry, not, that's not. Um, it's, it's used again in, uh, in Exodus, it's used in Exodus chapter 3, the first time it's used, yes, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. Thus you shall say, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, there it is, the Lord capitalized, Tetragrammaton, uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, again, there's capital Lord, God of, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what you have done in Egypt, and I have said I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord, again, capital Lord, God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey to the wilderness that we may sacrifice mankind to Moses. Drop down in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. God uh, uh, is uh, um, giving more explanation to this name and how this is a new thing for him to be known by this name to the children of Israel. In Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this, his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, or YHWH, I was not known to them. He's now making himself manifest by this name, Jehovah, or Yahweh. He is, again, the self-existent or eternal one. He doesn't need anyone or anything. He is eternal. Yahweh, Jehovah. The next name that we see in the Bible given to God that we want to look at is the Lord, my shepherd. God is referred to as a shepherd. We looked at this in our lesson extensively this morning, and so we don't have to get into great detail here, but we reference the 23rd Psalm, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is referred to, refers to himself as a shepherd. A shepherd, again, as we talked about this morning, cares for his sheep. He feeds his sheep. He leads his sheep. He protects his sheep from harm. He sees to their well-being. God is our shepherd, and we are his sheep. And that's a comforting thought. If you're having trouble sleeping tonight, instead of counting sheep, maybe think of yourself as a sheep and God being your shepherd. That's a wonderful, comforting thought, that he cares for you. He cares for what is troubling you and concerning you. And he wants you to make your petitions known to him because he will care for you and provide for you, just as a physical shepherd would for his sheep. You remember the story that Jesus talked about, about the, the shepherd who had a hundred sheep and yet there was one that was lost and he was concerned about that sheep. And God's concerned about us. He's our shepherd and it's a wonderful thought. In Psalm 100 verse 3, Psalm 100 verse 3, a very encouraging passage here. Psalm 100 verse 3, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. As we think about Him being our shepherd and we being His sheep, that is a humbling thought. And that is where we need to be. We need to be humble. In this age of technological advancement and advancement in knowledge and understanding, people have begun to get elevated in their pride. In the era of prosperity, in the area of understand, the Lord, we can become elevated in our pride. We need to understand the Lord has made us and not we ourselves. The Almighty God that we're talking about tonight made us, not we ourselves. And we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. I don't know if you have ever looked at pasture land as you're driving down the road where there are cows. But it has been said that if you're going to be a cattle farmer, that you also need to be a grass farmer because you've got to grow grass for your cows. And you go by some farmer's fields, and it's obvious that they're not grass farmers because they're bare. But though the farmer who's a good cattle farmer grows luscious grass for his animals so that they can be fed and nourished and protected. And he's going to make that pasture a safe place for his herd and his flock. We are the sheep of God's pasture. God knows how to grow grass for His people to provide us a place where we can flourish if we'll submit to Him. The Lord is our shepherd, and we are the sheep of His pasture. 
The Bible goes on and talks about God as the everlasting God. We see this in Genesis chapter 21, verse 33. Genesis 21, verse 33. Genesis 21, verse 33, Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. God is eternal. He has always existed, and He will always exist. Look at Psalm 90, verse 2. Psalm 90, verse 2, this idea of God always existing. And this hurts our head to think about. But it is a true characteristic of God that He is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal and everlasting. Now again, as I said, this hurts our head to think about because we're bound by time and space. Everything in our realm, in our world, has a beginning and an end because we think of things by time. God is not like that. He's not bound by time and space. He's eternal. And we can't understand that, but it's a truism of God that He's always existed and He'll always exist. People have given up their faith in, in God because of that, that they can't understand that. It doesn't make sense. And it won't make sense to us, but it is true that God is eternal. In John chapter 8, verse 58, in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is making the claim to be deity as well as He uh, 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 sense that He is also eternal. In John 8, John 8, verse 58 beginning, in John 8, beginning of verse 58, uh, <clears throat> at verse 57, the Jews said to him, You've not been yet, or you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says he'd always existed. He, he is, I am, the same way that God identified himself to Moses, I am. Jesus says that He is, I am, and that means that He has always existed. We serve an everlasting, eternal God. The Bible goes on and tells us also that we serve a jealous God. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, back in those Ten Commandments. An interesting uh, statement about God, that He's a jealous God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, speaking of the false gods. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the, to, on the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. God says that He's a jealous God. And He says that's His name. Uh, or that, That's described as His name. Look at Exodus 34, verse 14. Exodus 34, verse 14. Exodus 34, verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God says His name is Jealous. He's a jealous God. What does that mean? That means that God wants our worship, and He wants no exclusive loyalty and worship. He doesn't want it to go to any other God. God wants it. He's a jealous God. And that's an interesting idea because we typically think about jealousy being something that's bad. 
something good happens to you and I'm jealous of you, that's not a good thing. That's not a characteristic that we want. But godly jealousy is a good thing. Paul had godly jealousy. And look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He wanted the, the Christians there to be exclusively dedicated to God. He had godly jealousy for them. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning of verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. Uh, sorry, I'm in the first verse. 2 Corinthians. For I am jealous of you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste version to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul had godly jealousy. He wanted Christians to be devoted to God. He wanted their loyalty to be focused on Him. And that's the kind of God that we serve. We serve a jealous God. And then finally tonight, as we look at names given by God, to God in our Bibles, we have the name Lord of Hosts. The Lord of Hosts. We'll see that over and over again in the Bible. In the New Testament, we have an interesting phrase, the, the Lord of Sabaoth. They both mean the same thing. The Lord of Sabaoth, that's not the Lord of Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, he says. But Lord of Sabaoth is a different thing, and that is uh, synonymous with the idea of Lord of Host. Sabaoth means armies or host. And so Jehovah Sabaoth, sovereignty over every enemy, every army, God has sovereignty. He's over all of those. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. The Lord of hosts is mentioned there uh, as Samuel's father, ultimately, would be the one referenced here, is going up to worship God. In 1 Samuel chapter, I'm uh, sorry, in um, in Psalm 24, verse, uh, verse 9, beginning. Psalm 24, verse 9. Psalm 24, verse 9. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of Sabaoth. The Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. Salah. So again, in Psalm 94, 24, verses 9 and 10. The Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies. God is over the armies of men. He is, he is sovereign over them. He's above them. He's the Lord of hosts. As I mentioned, it's used in the New Testament, the idea of Lord of hosts, with that translation, Lord of Sabaoth, in Romans chapter 9, verse 29. Uh, hopefully this will help you understand when you read across this in the New Testament. Again, it's not Lord of Sabbath, but the Lord of hosts or armies or Sabaoth. As Isaiah said before, Romans 9, verse 29, uh, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us seed, we would have, have become like Sodom and he would have made us like Gomorrah. And then finally tonight, James chapter 5, verse 4. James chapter 5, verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The names of God help us to understand more about Him. Again, we haven't looked at all the names that are given to God in the Bible. 
But I think these help us have a better understanding of the God that we serve. He is the Almighty God. He is the Most High God. He is the, uh, our Lord, or should be our Lord God, the master, our Master. You see that capital Lova or Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. When you see that capital Lord in your Bibles, that's the word that's being translated. He is our shepherd. He is the everlasting God, a jealous God, and the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of Sabaoth. I hope this study will help us as we think about God to have a better understanding of Him, have more reverence for Him as we think about Him and as we approach Him in prayer. And as we think about those names that are given to God and the incredible majesty that He enjoys, we ought to also think about standing before Him one day. And that is a frightening thought if we're not prepared. The Almighty God. Can you imagine standing before Him when you've lived a life of rebellion and not submitting to Him? That ought to cause us great fear. If we're not living like we should, let's make a commitment right now to change that. And if we can help you with that, will you let us know while we stand and sing? <laughs>